We are continuing in our series on the Old Testament names of God today, and we are doing the last of the foundational names of God. We started with Elohim, the Creator God, and then we went to Yahweh, which is usually translated as Jehovah, um, the, the personal God, the God that relates to His creation in a personal, intimate way. And today we're going to talk about Adonai, Adonai, which means master or owner or Lord, um, and all the different aspects of that. And I honestly had never realized before, yes, there's an amazing beauty and richness to the names of God, because we, we understand different aspects of God's character through his names. It helps us in how we relate to him. But I had never seen the beauty in the, in the manner in which he delivered his names, the chronology in which he did that. And just track with me for a moment on this. If God had immediately first revealed himself as Adonai, the owner, the Lord, I think a lot of us would have been, no, thank you. You know, I, I can take care of myself. I don't need a boss. I don't need a ruler. But first he started with, I am the creator God. Before me, nothing existed. I am pre-existent. I am self-existent. I am self-providing. I am God eternally. And out of that came, but yet I'm personal. I'm not like the other gods of the other nations that are impersonal and, and just wrathful and vengeful and judging, and, and, but taking no role. Um, I'm a God who serves. I'm a God who took on human flesh. I'm a God that through Jesus Christ did not regard divinity as a thing to be held on to, but emptied myself in order to be a bondservant and serve you and pay the ultimate death upon the cross for your sins. And in that way that God reveals himself when he comes, and says, but I'm also the owner. I own everything. All of this is mine. Um, there's a sense in which we go, I'm yours. Because we see the progression and the way in which he has revealed himself. Adonai in scripture is a plural word, which uh, makes sense because God is plural, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one and yet three at the same time. The name Adonai appears more than 400 times in the Bible, and I'll tell you in a, in a little bit how you can distinguish between Yahweh and Adonai, because in English they're both Lord. And I know some of you last week thought, well, not every time it's Lord is it Yahweh, and you're right. 6,519 times in the Old Testament when the word Lord appears, it's Yahweh. And in most of your English translations, you can know that because it's all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. 400 times, it's Adonai. And we know that because in most English Bibles, it's just capital L and then Lord. And obviously, we know it through the Hebrew and the Aramaic and, and doing the word studies. But in our English Bibles, sometimes it's a little blurry. But that's a distinguished, uh, it's distinguishing mark there. The name... Uh, comes from the singular word Adon, which means master or ruler. And it communicates the ideas of dominion, rulership, and ownership. Dominion, rulership, and ownership. By the way, if you haven't got a binder yet, they're in the lobby. They're free. We made them available where you can keep the outlines in there rather than tossing them in your car or having them wedged in your Bible. And it's really great for taking notes. So just know they're at the Hello, desk, anytime you want to go and grab those, they're available and they're absolutely free. <clears throat> in Old Testament times, the, the thing we need to understand is that 
Adonai didn't express ownership so much as it communicated responsibility. Responsibility for the care and the well-being of servants. Um, it was the master's responsibility to provide for, to protect, to guide, and to maximize that which he owned. It wasn't just about lording it over and ruling, but it was this responsibility. Psalm 97 verse 5 says, God is the Lord, Adonai, of the whole earth. He's not only the creator, Elohim, but he's also the owner, Adonai. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. It reminds me of what the former Prime Minister of the Netherlands, um, Abraham Kuyper, once said. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ and God, who are sovereign over all, do not cry, Mine, mine. I think of Finding Nemo where the seagulls are like, Mine, 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 mine. (laughs) God isn't annoying like that, but, you know, as he looks out over the universe and creation, he says, This is mine. I made it all. I got it all going. It all continues to exist and to survive because of my care and my power. And that's what it means that God is the ruler. In the New Testament, the Greek for Lord is the word kyrios. And it communicates the same idea as Adonai in the Old Testament. We speak of the lordship of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We talk about how Jesus needs to be our master and our Lord and not merely our savior. Jesus is not someone who saves us from hell so that we can live like hell. Jesus demands to be our Lord and our master as well. Time and time again, ownership in Scripture, as I said, is much more than just uh, ruling, but it's responsibility. It's not just dominion, but it's care. I I love in 1 Peter uh, 3, verse 6, it refers back to the Old Testament, and it's kind of a shocking thing that Sarah and Abraham, Sarah actually called Abraham her Lord. And for modern women, they'd be like, nope, thank you. Like, not, that's not flying. But in doing this, she was acknowledging Abraham's responsibility to her. And I, I love something Tony Evans wrote uh, in this book, The Power of God's Names, where he's talking about his daughter-in-law, Kanika. He says, Kanika is married to my youngest son, Jonathan. One day we were talking about her pregnancy and how they had planned to raise their new child. And she told me that she had to check with Jonathan first on something before letting me know the plans for sure. To which I replied, Kanika, honest question. Do you ever get frustrated that as a woman you need to check with your husband on certain things first? Does that bother you? Kanika's reply came even faster than my question. I could tell that she had thought about this before. Her answer was, actually, I don't get frustrated about that at all. In fact, I prefer it. Her response interested me, so I dug deeper. Why do you prefer it? Because ultimately, it reminds me that he's responsible. If there's a problem, I get to throw it to him. If there's an issue, I get to toss it to him. I can relax knowing that he's got it. In other words, Kanika rested in knowing that Jonathan would fulfill his role as husband by being responsible for their family. In that light, she didn't mind checking with him on final decisions because then he also would be there to handle things should those decisions lead to difficult situations later on. 
I, I, I point that out not because we're going to talk about marriage today and we're going to suddenly you know, talk about submission, and, but because marriage is a good example of, of God's ownership over us. It should not be rulership. It not, should not be this dominion. It should not be dictatorship. It should be that he's got my back. He loves me. I, I can give him full charge and responsibility of everything in my life that I can't figure out and that I can't predict. And that's very, very comforting. As heads or lords of their family, husbands need to care for, provide for, guide and protect their wife and children, just as God does. And that's probably the best earthly example that we have of God's lordship over us when it's working properly and when it's modeled clearly. I want to just open up today with Genesis 15. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. We're going to look at six verses here. And... I want to talk about different aspects of God's lordship today, and I want to do it through the lens of Genesis 15, the story of Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 1. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram, before God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, and I love the honesty of this, O sovereign Lord, What good are all of your blessings when I don't even have a son? Abram's like, you promised me a son 10 years ago. And here I'm 100 years old now. Like, when, you know, when? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all of my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one one of my servants will be my heir. But then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. That's where we get that verse. Abraham believed God and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15:1, Lord is written in all caps, meaning it's Yahweh. It's the relational God, the intimate God. Yet in verse 2, only the letter L is capitalized because it's the Hebrew word Adonai, Lord, what we're talking about today. God had promised Abram that he was going to make him a great nation, that he would give him a son, an heir, a child, even in his old age. And as I said, God had made that promise 10 years ago as Yahweh, as the self-revealing God. And Abram had responded to God by moving his family to the promised land, by leaving everything that was familiar, everybody that he knew, and going to a land that he was unfamiliar with where he knew no one. Talk about faith. And in fact, he had been there for a decade, 10 years, as I've said in Genesis 15, our passage. There's a 10-year gap between Genesis 12, when God called Abraham, and Genesis 15, where we're having this conversation. God had made his promise, and yet no baby. No evidence that God was going to fulfill his plan. And so Abraham had heard and believed what God had said when he revealed himself in his plan, but not yet seen the fulfillment of God's promise, Abraham appeals to God as owner, as absolute ruler, as Adonai. I know you love me, Yahweh, but I appeal to you as Lord. 
as the one in charge, I'm aching because everything that I own, everything that I have, I, there's no one to pass it on to. You've given me no heir, no son, and you promised you would do that. So it's kind of hurtful, you know? We're going to talk about that later on. There's times in our life where we feel like God is toying with us. We've had examples of that even in our staff recently where people have just been, you know, like, seriously, I can't take much more of this. And then, you know, a week later or a month later, there's a whole different perspective. And that's God's timing. It's not always our timing. But, O sovereign Lord, in verse 2, Adonai is, is the word. O Lord God, in verse 8, Adonai Yahweh. That's how Abram appeals to God. Not just as Yahweh, the God that loves me and knows me intimately, but as the ruler, the one in charge, the one who can fix all things. So as I said, I want to spend the rest of the time today talking about three key aspects of how we can relate to God as Adonai, as Lord, as Master. The first has to do with this concept of lordship and ownership. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing I want to unpack for you. What lordship and ownership really means in biblical terms. In the book of Romans, Paul opens with these words. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. As many of you know, a bondservant was someone who had received their freedom as a servant, but had willingly chosen to stay with their master because, for whatever reason, they felt like, uh, staying with my master, I'll have a better life and livelihood than I would ever have on my own. But at the time that they would do that, they were taken to the doorway, and they kind of punched a hole in their ear. And from that time on, they were a bondservant, someone who was willingly serving for life. That was the agreement. And that's what Paul calls himself here. Believing in Jesus as our Savior, one person said, takes us to heaven, but declaring and living for him as our Master and as our Lord brings heaven to us. There's a big difference between that. Big difference. When we acknowledge our rightful place underneath Jesus as his servant, we start seeing his delivering power in our life. There's a lot of people that call on God kind of just as the genie in the bottle. But it's that personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ in which we see his power displayed in our life and we understand him as Adonai. If we need to see more of God's rescue and deliverance in our lives, perhaps... We position Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. I, I told you, um, yeah, that quote that I did earlier was from a chapel years ago when Ron Ritchie from Peninsula Bible Church, some of you remember the great Bible teacher Ray Steadman way years ago, but famous, famous church. Ron Ritchie was a youth pastor there, and he was speaking at a Westmont chapel, and he caught everybody's attention when he said, you know, all of you want Jesus to be your Savior who saves you from hell so you can live like hell, but he demands to be your Lord. And people kind of stopped doing their homework and looked up like, what did he just say? You know, it was pretty convicting. And it's true. Oftentimes we relate to Jesus only as Savior, but not as Lord. Unless God truly owns all of us, we won't be able to experience all of him. It's that simple. Simply declaring Lord, Lord, as if it were magical words that we utter and kind of command God does nothing. Confessing Adonai in our life requires actions, behavior on our part that verifies that he is in fact and indeed the Lord of our life, the master. So important. 
spiritually speaking, surrendering to God as Adonai is the key to the unveiling of Yahweh in our life. Surrender is the key to allowing God to express and reveal and manifest himself in our life. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And yet, what's the rest of that? You do not do what I tell you to do. It's nauseating. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I ask you to do? If I was truly your Lord and your master, you would, you would do my will. And acknowledging God and surrendering to him as Adonai are two totally different things. Adonai comes with obedience. Adonai comes with sacrifice. Adonai comes with a heart that longs to follow the will of our Heavenly Father and recognizes him as owner, the one who calls the shots, the one whose lead we follow. I was reading just an excerpt from uh, this guy, Ben Witherington. He wrote a book on finances called Jesus and Money, and he, he was relating even the concept of tithing to the lordship of God. He says, why is it that a tithe of everything is required by God, even spices and condiments like dill and mint and cumin in the Bible? The answer is simple, because it is a reminder to God's people that everything belongs to God. Everything. It's not a matter of parceling things out between God's portion and our portion, God's property and our property. It all belongs to God. And the tithing of the very first fruits of any and all of our crops and other resources is a constant reminder of this fact. It all belongs to God. He is the ruler. He is Lord. And we give back to him in reflection of there. That is what lordship and ownership means. The second concept that we need to come to terms with is surrender and control. Surrender and control. Almost from the moment of birth, we engage in a struggle for control of that portion of the world that we live in. Can we get our parents to provide for our needs and wants when we want and how we want? Can we get our playmates to play our way? Or will they control us to play their way? Can we control situations and others to fulfill our agenda? Or are we manipulated into serving others? Can we create enough of a security structure around our lives that we will be able to control life's adversities? On and on and on we seek control because we believe that through control comes freedom and fulfillment. And scripture says it leads to bondage. It leads to bondage. Frederick Buchner, a, theolo a theologian and pastor of years gone by, says stop trying to protect, to rescue, to judge, to manage the lives around you. Your children's lives, the life of your husband, your wife, your partner, your friends. I love this. Because you are powerless to do it. Surrender and control begins with us acknowledging that we are powerless to control the very things that we want to control. The things that drive us nuts, that we are anxious about and, and you know, having high blood pressure over. We have to begin by saying, God, I give it to you because I am powerless. It's vain, it's meaningless for me to even start. Author Rebecca Pippert frames the issue of control this way. 
Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Whatever that is, whatever controls us is our Lord. And that's why Jesus says, and God says, it's got to be me. Because nothing else will substitute. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will work in any practical, meaningful way. Pastor Bruce Larson had an unusual way of convincing people to turn their lives around to Jesus Christ. When he was working in New York City, he would walk a man or a woman downtown to the front of the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In front of the building, there was a gigantic statue of a massively proportioned, magnificently muscled atlas, the world resting on his shoulders. As powerfully built as he was, You can see him straining under the weight, barely able to stand. Larson would say, now there's one way to live, trying to carry the world on your shoulders. But now, come across the street with me. Across the street is St. Patrick's Cathedral. There behind the altar is a little shrine of the boy Jesus. He appears to be no more than eight or nine years old. As little and as frail as he appears... He is holding the world in one hand. Then Larson would say, we have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders, or we can say, I give it to you, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world, all of it, the whole of it. I read this powerful testimony from a woman I don't know. I've never read the full book, but her name is Bianca Oltoth, and she's got a book called Play With Fire. She says, we all go through desert seasons and have the opportunity to determine how we will respond. The cyclical frustrations I faced in regard uh, to my desire for control, fear, and the longing to feel chosen were the catalysts that initiated my time in the desert. I longed to create my own transformation. I wanted to be chosen. I wanted to be in control. And following my own way, I found myself in a dry and weary place, and I couldn't navigate my way out. What is control? For me, it was a woman with fabulous hair and defined biceps. She is the straight-A student, the achieving executive. She always is two steps ahead. Her favorite word is yes, and she can deliver results to anyone. And although control is impossible to pin down, I chased her. I wanted to be her. I thought I could be her. I followed control's lead, hair, biceps, straight A's, and all. I said yes to everyone. Yes made me feel like I was in control of the outcome and that the results depended on me and me alone. Yes gave me the illusion that I could deliver joy and happiness to others as well as to myself. If you take this demanding job, you will have the financial freedom you've always wanted. Yes, I'll take it. If you copy this essay, you will be guaranteed an A in the class. Yes, I will do it. If you try this diet pill, it will make you lose 24 pounds in 24 hours. Yes, I'll pop that pill. All of us would. (laughs) But control is a manipulator. She promises what she can't deliver. She promises perfection. 
While I chased after control and envied her apparent freedom, God called after me and tried to remind me that control was my own construct. I know this now. Looking back, I can see that no matter how perfect my wardrobe was, how thin my waist became, how much education I obtained, nothing made me feel secure. Ironically, I couldn't control myself out of my own desert. The more I tried, the drier, hotter, and more desolate it became. God watched as I proved that my plan to micromanage every second of my life only led me deeper into desolation. He knew the futility of my attempts. And like a patient, loving father, he waited for me to understand that I needed to entrust my life to him. Friends, the, the key to freedom is surrender. The, the key to life and happiness and joy is giving up control. And it's counterintuitive to us. It goes against everything that we've been taught and raised to believe in our Western control-oriented mindset about being in charge. The old famous author Andrew Murray once said, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. Ignatius of Loyola said, There are very few people who realize what God would make of them if they fully abandoned themselves into his hands and let themselves be formed by his grace. If we could see that, we'd say, Yes, Lord, bring it on. Take it. Run with it. I'm tired of fighting. Well, the last is the concept of freedom and fulfillment. When we understand the lordship and the ownership of Christ, and of God, and when we fully uh, understand surrender and giving up control, it, it, it leads to and it results in freedom and fulfillment. Freedom and fulfillment. I read the funniest thing this week. I, I literally, as I was studying, laughed out loud. There was no one around me, and I felt like an idiot, but I, I had to share it with you. There's this guy named Joe Kloss, and he wrote this book called 12 Steps to Happiness. And he was talking about John 8, 32, which everybody quotes all the time. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And nowadays, it's just truth in general. It has nothing to do with Jesus. But he said, the truth will set you free, but it will tick you off at first. <laughs> and I thought, how true, you know? Like, all of us want freedom, but we don't always want to acknowledge the truth that leads to that freedom. Dostoevsky once said, Man, so long as he remains free, must constantly struggle with the agonizing anxiety of someone to worship. And I thought, you know, that really hits it at the core. Because we were created with free will, the constant struggle is, who are we going to worship? And many people go throughout life worshiping themselves. Egomaniacs, narcissists, many other people... Worship somebody else that they can follow, that they can draft behind, that they can shadow. Very few people learn to worship their creator and their Lord. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about giving it up for him, surrender, and finding freedom and fulfillment. The less that we're a slave to Christ, the more bound we become to illegitimate strongholds. It's actually through our surrender to him that he gives us lasting freedom. Surrender equals freedom. The world says surrender equals bondage. 
servitude. Scripture is counterintuitive. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, Paul says in Corinthians. Surrender equals freedom. Oz Guinness, who's smarter than all of us, said, brilliant. He said, we are rapidly reaching the point in our Western consumer societies where people confuse freedom with choice. And they're dazzled daily by an ever-expanding array of external choices in consumer goods and lifestyle options. But the pursuit of freedom has led us to an abundance of choices and a scarcity of meaning and a value point at which choice itself, rather than the content of any choice, has become the heart of freedom. He's saying choice itself rather than the content of that choice has become the essence of freedom for so many of us. He said the result is that modern people value choice rather than a good choice. It doesn't matter if I'm even making a choice. At least I can make a choice. I'm just going to make choices, you know. And we're so empowered and entitled in our ability to choose that we choose horrible things for ourselves. We choose destructive things, things that can't give us life. And God is like, please, let me, let me have the wheel. Let me have control. You are ruining your life. David Brooks, in his book called The Second Mountain, says personal, social, and emotional freedom, when it becomes an ultimate end, absolutely sucks. It leads to a random, busy life with no discernible direction, no firm foundation, and in which, as Karl Marx put it, all that solid melts to air. It turns out that freedom isn't an ocean that you want to spend your life in. Freedom is a river you want to get across so that you can plant yourself on the other side and fully commit to something. Friends, freedom is what leads us to Jesus, to plant our our life and our firm foundation on God. He is the solid rock on, on nothing else Will we agree to stand? Committing to Jesus, to God. That's, that's what lordship and ownership means. Freedom comes when we know that God is enough and that he is our everything. Someone else said it. You never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I believe there's a time in each of our lives where God takes away everything else to remind us that we don't need all of the things that we think we need. We only need him. And it's hard, and it's painful, and it's not fun, but it's a reminder that we all need, that we all need. Bruce A. Ware, I thought it was funny, his middle name is A, his last name is Ware, so he's Bruce A. Ware. In his book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships and Roles and Relevance, he says, freedom is not what our culture tells us it is. Freedom is not my deciding from the urges and longings of my sinful nature to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. According to the Bible, that is bondage, not freedom. Rather, true freedom is living as Jesus lived. For he is the freest human being who ever lived. In fact, he is the only fully free human being who has ever lived, And one day we will be set fully free when we always and only 
do the will of God. So what is freedom? Amazingly, Jesus' answer is this. Freedom is submitting. Submitting fully to the will of God, to the words of God, and to the work that God calls us to do. It's through submission and surrender that we find freedom. And in freedom, we find fulfillment. Fulfillment and joy like nothing else that we could ever attain on our own. (coughs) I want to go back to Abraham as we close today because many of us are here today and God has promised us things. God has spoken things in our life and we are waiting for those things to happen and be fulfilled. And we are in that in-between stage where we feel like he is messing with us. He is toying with us. We don't feel like he loves us. We don't feel like he cares. And we are constantly reminding him of the promises he made to us. And we're like, what is up, God? Ten years have gone by. Twenty years have gone by. Will my child ever return to the faith? Will my spouse ever love me again the way that, you know, on and on and on? Will I ever have a job that's steady and that can provide for my family and not just stress-inducing? Will I ever get over these health issues that just seem to be persistent and nagging? Whatever it is. I recently read something that pastor and author Tony Evans wrote regarding an insight in Isaiah 6 that I had never seen before, and it's beautiful. Almost all of you are familiar with Isaiah 6.1, where Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, Adonai, our word today, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And we go on from this passage because... And and the heavenly host said, who will go for the Lord? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. After he hit the ground and said, I'm an unclean person with unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and the, the, the angels came and put the burning coals to his lips and purified him and commissioned him for God's service. And we always turn this into a passage on service, and it is to some extent. But he says, notice when Isaiah saw God as Adonai, It was in the year that the human king, Uzziah, died. Why is this important? Because human kings often appear to be the key to our victory. When Isaiah's human king died, he was forced to see who really owned and ruled over everything. I thought, awesome insight, Tony. Sometimes we can see Adonai, we can't see Adonai until... He allows something to die in our life or our circumstances. He allows that thing, that person, that idea that we depend on to lose its influence on us. Graciously, this isn't always a physical death, but something happens when we no longer depend upon what we once did. God might allow a job to go away or for our finances to suffer for a time. Or for a person to be geographically removed from our lives whom we once thought that we could never live without. Whatever it is. I thought about the disciples. It wasn't until Jesus was physically removed from their presence that many of them truly understood what it means that he was Lord. It wasn't until Jesus came back and stood in that upper room and stood before Thomas and said, Thomas, I know you have doubts, but look, here are the holes in my hands. Reach and touch. Here are the holes in my feet that were stretched out for you on the cross. You were there. You saw it and believed. 
be not doubting anymore. I don't condemn you for doubting, but be not doubting anymore. Believe. And how did Thomas respond? My Lord, Adonai, Kyrios, my Lord and my God. Like, I've been following you for three years, but I, I finally get it. You are Lord. You are Master. And that's the point at which his faith became real. The question is asked, at what point did the disciples become Christians? I believe almost all of them, if not all of them, not until after Jesus rose from the grave. They knew his words. They knew his teaching. It's like coming to church every week and knowing all the right answers. But until it's personal through Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, as the one who saves you from hell and forgives your sin and reunites you and reconnects you with God, it's not eternal life and it's not a saving faith. And that's why Adonai is so important. As we approach the table today, this is not just the body and the blood of Jesus shed for us so that we can be our best version of ourselves and achieve the American dream. It was shed so that we might surrender to him and say, you are my Lord, you are my master, you call the shots, you are in charge of my future and my destiny.